China reopens its borders for the first time since the COVID pandemic hit the country nearly three years ago and weeks after relaxing its no COVID policies. It's Tuesday, December 27th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, Ukraine says it wants to host a peace summit at the UN in February, a date that'll mark one year since Russia invaded the country. Also this hour, food banks say inflation means more people are seeking their help, but those rising costs are also making it harder to keep shelves stocked. I think the food insecurity story was a really big one during the pandemic, and um, unfortunately it still exists. And how unpaid foster care debt is delaying reunions between children and their parents. Sports, Celtics and Bruins both look to continue winning streaks tonight. Forecast says clear skies today, temperatures in the mid-30s. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The death toll from a massive winter storm hitting Buffalo, New York, has risen to at least 27. Officials say that number is expected to grow as search and rescue operations continue. New York Governor Kathy Hochul says the fatalities from the storm are taking a toll on first responders. Going into homes, uh, going into vehicles and then too many tragic times of finding people who did not survive the experience. And I want them to know that we know that it's difficult work to do. And they're grieving inside, as we all are, for the families who are getting the horrible, heartbreaking news that their loved ones succumbed to the storm over the last day or two. Hundreds of National Guard troops have been deployed to help with rescue and recovery efforts. Blizzard conditions reduce visibility to near zero, leaving many drivers stranded on the sides of roadways. Freezing temperatures in Jackson, Mississippi are taking a toll on the city's fragile water system. Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Lacey Alexander reports that crews have been working for days to find a solution. The city of Jackson issued a citywide boil notice on Christmas Day that is still in effect. Residents have reported having little to no water at all, and officials say this is due to multiple line breaks that have yet to be identified. The city is asking anyone who sees a leak in Jackson to report it. Mississippi State Senator John Horn says he hopes that the federal money that has gone into the issue will be well spent on a solution. I'm hopeful that this will be the last winter season that we'll see problems like this in Jackson, Mississippi. Officials say they are unsure when these problems will be resolved. For NPR News, I'm Lacey Alexander in Jackson. Taiwan is extending its period of mandatory military service as it prepares to confront increased Chinese military aggression. NPR's Emily Fang reports beginning in 2024, required military training will be one year instead of four months. Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen announced the move at a national security meeting. Let us show the courage and determination to protect our homeland and defend democracy, she said in a speech to senior officials. Taiwan has compulsory military training for all young men on the self-ruled island, as well as a reservist system with approximately 2.3 million people. However, both programs have been criticized for their poor training. Tsai said compulsory training would be intensified and bolstered by help from U.S. forces. China is just across a narrow channel of water from Taiwan and over the weekend held another round of military exercises in the air and waters around Taiwan. Emily Fang, NPR News. Stocks across Asia traded mixed today. This is 
NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Governor-elect Maura Healey says she is focused on the immediate operational needs of the MBTA, but Healey is already facing requests to look at extending the Green Line further into Medford. WBUR's Sharon Brody reports on the renewed effort to build on the new Green Line extension that just opened. Decades of delays affected the project to bring MBTA rail service through Somerville and into Medford. Medford Mayor Brianna Longo-Kern says she's happy the state finally delivered, but she would like the Green Line to expand as far as Route 16. We'll work to set up meetings with the Secretary of Transportation's office to really push for this. The Conservation Law Foundation's Stacey Rubin says it's time for the state to return to the original Green Line extension map. A long-planned promise that was essentially committed to back when Governor Deval Patrick was in office. Rubin says she thinks the economic and environmental benefits of an additional mile of rail service would be worth the investment. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sharon Brody. The number of people who are working in Massachusetts is shrinking. A new report from the Department of Economic Research attributes the decline to a growing number of people retiring from the state's workforce and a slowing birth rate. It says the pandemic also had an effect. Right now, there are 80,000 fewer people working in the state than there were three years ago. Schools in Chicopee are hiring more than a dozen professionals to help kids deal with social and emotional problems caused by pandemic isolation. The 19 new positions will include five behavioral specialists and three social workers. Mass Live reports the district plans to fund the new hires with its own savings, despite still having federal COVID relief money on hand. School officials say they don't want to use it for the positions because it is one-time funding. A local arts organization that tries to build mutual understanding among Bostonians of different backgrounds is getting a $750,000 grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. The JAR produces interactive events with groups of people from different religious, ethnic, and racial backgrounds. Guy Benarone is founder and co-director of the JAR. We all have people in our lives we'd like to get to know better, but society often dictates who we pray with, who we interact with, who we work with. This is a way to bypass that. Programs include poetry, theater, music, or comedy, followed by guided discussion and activities. The JAR says the grant money will help it double its programming each year for the next three years. It's 7.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. On stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. In sports, the Bruins will be on the road tonight as they skate with the Ottawa Senators at 7 o'clock. Celtics will be at home tonight against the Houston Rockets. They're hoping to net their third straight win after a big Christmas Day victory against Milwaukee. Tip-off there at 7.30. In the forecast, it will be mostly sunny and clear today. Highs in the mid-30s. Increasing clouds tonight. Temperatures in the low 20s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy. Highs in the upper 30s, low 40s. And Thursday, mostly sunny skies with highs in the mid-40s. Right now, 26 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. Ukrainian officials say they want to host a peace summit at the United Nations in February. Now that would be one year since Russia launched its full-scale invasion against Ukraine. The proposal comes just a day after Russian President Vladimir Putin accused Ukraine of being unwilling to negotiate an end of the war. NPR's Yulian Haida has been following this from Kyiv. Yulian, okay, so what can you tell us about this proposed peace summit? Yeah, so we learned about the summit yesterday in an interview that Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, gave the Associated Press. He said he wants the UN to mediate, especially Secretary General Antonio Guterres, to be part of this mediating team and to have, quote, everybody on board with a Ukrainian peace plan. But I got to say, this peace plan sounds a lot more like a list of demands than any peace plan I know of. Uh, Ukraine wants Russia to retreat to its pre-war borders. They want Crimea back. They want all of their prisoners of war to come home. And they want security guarantees from the West that something like this, this war never happens again, that Russia is never allowed to invade someone like Ukraine again. And if that's not enough, Kuleba also says that he doesn't even want Russia at the summit until Russian officials are dragged in front of a war crimes tribunal. Now, (laughs) that takes a really long time to set up. Uh, Tribunals like this take years, if not more. And it seems like a list of demands that, uh, at least right now, seems unlikely to happen, um, at least the way Ukraine wants it to happen. So what do you think is really going on here? Yeah, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has expressed frustration with the UN. He's repeatedly chastised them for being ineffective. He partially blames that on the fact that Russia has a seat on the Security Council, something that Ukraine is trying to get taken away from Russia. I think Ukraine is, especially here at the UN, trying to shore up international support as the war grinds into its second winter. Ukraine wants a broader coalition to help it take on Russia militarily and economically. The Ukrainians want cash, and they want Russia totally isolated. Now, when President Zelensky was in Washington last week, he said on a bunch of occasions how much he wants the global south to join in the sanctions regime against Russia. And he knows that as ineffectual as he accuses the U.N. of being, it can make a difference. I mean, look at the grain deal that the U.N. bridged in July, making sure that ships loaded with Ukrainian foodstuffs reach famine-prone countries in Africa and Asia. Zelensky is hoping that if he keeps pushing the U.N., he can get some of those member states who are kind of on the fence to back Ukraine. All right, now let's assume for just a second that they find a way to go ahead with this idea of a peace summit. Um, Any reason at all to think that it could help change the direction of the war? It's unlikely. Uh, Ukraine has been talking for quite a bit about how a negotiated settlement would look. You might remember back in March, Ukrainian and Russian negotiators appeared to be getting pretty close to some sort of negotiated settlement. But Ukraine began to reclaim territory, and all these atrocities began emerging. You might remember Bucha, and that was the end of that. Uh, I remember going with my NPR colleagues to visit Ukraine's top negotiator in the spring, And this negotiator said, of course Ukraine wants to negotiate, but only after things play out on the battlefield. And that's basically what Kuleba told the AP yesterday. He said, quote, every war ends on the battlefield and at the negotiating table. That's NPR's Yulian Haida. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Just last week, any type of compromise between Russia and Ukraine seemed out of the question. Let's ask Daniel Fried what's changed. He's a former U.S. ambassador to Poland, now the Weiser Family Distinguished Fellow at the Atlantic Council. Ambassador, why do you think uh, both sides seem to be at least up for talking now? I wouldn't hold my breath for negotiations to start. I think both sides are trying 
to seize the high ground of being the reasonable party. But let's remember, they're not equal parties. Russia's the aggressor. Putin started this war for no good reason. Ukraine is fighting for its life and trying to keep itself free, weak, and liberate its territory. They're the ones in the right. Putin is the aggressor. So it's not an equal match. But I think that Foreign Minister Kuleba is right. Much depends on the battlefield. Putin started this war, but he can't seem to win it. The Ukrainians are taking back territory. They may continue to do so. And it makes a difference, especially to the people who were liberated by the, Ukraine, the Ukrainian military. So both sides are staking out strong positions, but the Russian position is we demand as a start of negotiations recognition of the territories we've conquered for no good reason and are busy brutalizing. The Ukrainian starting position is we want our country back. Ambassador, we're going to fix your line in just a one second, but I wanted to bring this up too because, so, okay, Ukraine's foreign minister said they would only invite Russia to a UN peace summit if they face prosecutions for war crimes. There's also another list of demands as well. How likely do you think any of that is uh, before they would get to the negotiating table? I think that the Ukrainians are clearly positioning themselves as the, re the more reasonable party by demanding basically what they deserve, which is to get their country back. Every time negotiations have been kicked about as an idea, the Russians reiterate their position that negotiations must start from recognizing Russia's conquest of territory, some of which it doesn't even control. So the Russians are being the the aggressive party here and not the reasonable one. But still, I think that both the Russians and the Ukrainians are waiting for uh, the results on the battlefield. The Ukrainians think they can make more progress. I think that's a reasonable hope. The Russians are hoping that the West will fall apart, it will not support Ukraine, and that they can, by attacking Ukrainian civilians and trying to destroy its energy infrastructure, which is going on right now, uh, that the Ukrainian ability to resist will be weakened. So both sides think they can gain advantage. The difference is that Ukraine is fighting for its life, its survival. And the Russians are fighting for what? Putin's imperial vanity? For a memory of a Russian empire and the Soviet empire? The Russians it, it, it sounds, Ambassador, that this is an ego check in a way for Vladimir Putin because if it goes back to pre-war borders and Crimea goes back to Ukraine, that sounds like a like an ego blow that I don't even know if Vladimir Putin could support to even talk about. Well, you're right. And in Russian history, the, when the Kremlin starts wars that it can't win, bad things often follow. And this is the case now, which is why Putin is so desperate to continue. But it's not up to the Ukrainians to make life easier for Vladimir Putin. It's for all of us to help the Ukrainians turn back Putin's aggression, which is it's possible that Ukraine will succeed. And it is very much in our interest that it do so. Uh, Zelensky was right when he told the Congress that American support for Ukraine is not charity, it's an investment. It's an investment in security, it's an investment in a, an international order that actually is quite favorable to the United States. 
that is a rules-based system in which aggressors don't get to, to run over other countries. Ambassador, quickly in the last 30 seconds we have, what would you need to see or hear between now and the possible date, uh, February, for these negotiations to, to actually think that something might come of them? I'd like to, to see something from the Russians that suggests that they're falling off their maximum positions. If they do that, then you can have a real discussion. I hope so, but don't hold your breath. Former U.S. Ambassador and Distinguished Fellow at the Atlantic Council, Daniel Freed. Thank you very much. Some frogs are tiny and transparent, just like crystal figurines. Now, appropriately enough, they're called glass frogs, and they can achieve near total invisibility. Scientists now have a window into how they do it. NPR's Ari Daniel tells us more. A few years back, Jesse D'Elia, now a biologist at the American Museum of Natural History, was in Panama. He was wrapping up a field study on a type of glass frog, and he brought a handful of these translucent frogs, each no bigger than a half-dollar coin, to the lab for a photo shoot. I wanted to get some photos of the glass frog bellies, and so I put them in Petri dishes. You could see the circulatory system. It was red, with red blood cells. And then it wasn't. When I came back later, it was gone. It was crazy. As if the arteries and veins filled with red blood had just melted away. He then took a video of the glass frog's pumping and seemingly bloodless heart. D'Elia sent it to his collaborator, Carlos Taboada, a biologist at Duke University. It was colorless. It was insane. Not even the telltale red streak of a vessel in the frog's belly was visible. I've never seen anything like that. The biologists wanted to know, how did the frogs hide their blood? Where did all those red cells go? In a new paper out in the journal Science, D'Elia says they now have an answer. They hide most of their red blood cells in their liver. Their liver, which is coated in reflective crystals. During the day, while the glass frogs are asleep on green leaves, they're vulnerable to predators. So they cram their livers full of red blood cells to become super transparent, far less visible to those who'd eat them. As they sleep, those red cells transport very little oxygen. It means that they probably have some specialized metabolism, some alternative process that allows them to keep their cells alive during transparency. Then, at night, when the frogs become active and they're going about their regular business of feeding and mating, the amphibians release their red blood cells back into circulation. In the dark, predators no longer rely on visual cues. Rather, they detect vibrations in the leaves or use chemical signals. Once it's daytime, the cycle begins anew. Carlos Taboada again. They pack like 90% of their red blood cells in a really, really small volume. Normally, those conditions can trigger like some clotting disorders. It's a remarkable adaptation that allows these little frogs to pull off their vanishing act. Ari Daniel, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, the multiple crises in Haiti from poverty to political instability and gang violence coming up here on WBUR. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. 
Microsoft wants to acquire Activision Blizzard for almost $70 billion. Microsoft says it won't harm consumers, but is the mega merger a new kind of monopoly? Does the human capacity to control these systems keep up with the growth of the new systems and their expansion over time? Our series, More Than Money, The Cost of Monopolies in America, continues. On point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In the forecast, it will be mostly sunny skies today, highs in the mid-30s. Clear skies tonight, lows dropping to about 20 degrees. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, highs right around 40. Thursday, back to sunshine, highs in the mid-40s. Friday, mostly sunny again, upper 40s. And Saturday, should be mostly cloudy with a chance of rain and highs in the lower 50s. Right now, it is 26 degrees in Boston at 720. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft. Used by millions globally. Learn more at KeeperNPR.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AECF.org. And from Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families, IWPR.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. The Haitian government's request for an international armed force to help restore security has gone unanswered. Violent gangs are kidnapping, raping, and killing people, and cholera is spreading as many Haitians are facing starvation. In January, there will be more political uncertainty as there will be no elected lawmakers sitting in the country's Senate. The Miami Herald's Jacqueline Charles spoke to our co-host Leila Fadel about the situation in Haiti. It's very difficult. Close to half the population right now does not have enough to eat. And there are about 20,000 people facing famine-like conditions. Um, you know, you're talking about 34% of schools that are still closed. Um, over 100,000 people that have been displaced out of their home over the past year. And of course, with cholera, they suspect that they've reached 15,000 cases throughout the country's, you know, 10 regional departments. What you're describing is so devastating. And then because of the gang violence, a lot of international aid organizations have also left the country. So what support do people in Haiti who need help have? They have very little help. And you're right. A number of international aid organizations, they have left. They've been leaving quietly for some time now. Groups, you know, from South Florida, for instance, that used to travel down there elsewhere around the country to help children with heart problems or other ailments. They haven't been able to take any of these medical groups there. Um, so really, you know, you're talking about a population that really has been left um, to fend for itself. And, you know, and let's be clear, this whole issue of foreign assistance, um, it triggers, you know, a lot of emotion for some people. There are yeah. some individuals who say, no way, we you know, we don't want it. 
You know, you ask the Haitian, do you want a foreign occupation? Because of the history of exactly, foreign intervention. Exactly, you know, but at the same time, when you talk to that mother who is worried about her child and does she send her child out into the streets and, and because she's not sure if that child is going to come back or does she herself take the risk? But you don't know, you know, are you going to, to make it back home alive? If you could just lay out the history that feeds into the skepticism around international intervention. Well, first, you have to talk about, you know, I think the Haitian constitution that's, you know, I mean, this is a country that was founded by former slaves, you know, when they revolted against France. So there's this whole issue of sovereignty. Um, but in more recent times, you look at the United Nations that have had to step into Haiti, you know, with their peacekeeping operations over the years, and people have been critical about that. But you know, as a reporter on the ground, I've always said that um, when you have, you know, UN peacekeepers that have come into your country, their job and role is not to make everything right again. It's to create the political space and the stability and the security. It's called a stabilization force for a reason, in order to allow the Haitian actors to step into that space and to provide some guidance, governance, you know, some laws, you know, that will ensure that stability. There's been political chaos since the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moïse in July 2021. In your reporting, how do Haitians feel about Prime Minister Ariel Henry's ability to handle this moment and the necessary political changes. Prime Minister Ariel Henry has faced an uphill battle from the start in terms of leading this country. I mean, one, we have to remember that he was named by um, Jovenel Moïse, who at the time of his death was an increasingly unpopular president. And so Ariel Henry has always been viewed as aligned with Jovenel Moïse. He's never been able to be independent, and that has not helped him at all. Um, at the same time, he has instituted some very unpopular measures, starting, of course, with this decision to raise the price of fuel. And, and when you talk to people, you know, they're looking at the situation in this country where the economy is in shambles, the political paralysis is, is, is increasing, you know, hunger is growing, and you've got this person there and they're not elected. But at the same time, when you talk to folks in the international community, what they're saying, okay, but you guys need to come up with a solution. You need to come up with a plan. And so what you find today is Ariel Henry is trying to bring together various groups around the table to see if they can come up with some sort of a plan to lead this country into a transition that will get it to elections. Can he do it? I don't know. Um, everybody is sort of watching it. What is a Haitian led solution in the midst of all of this, all of these crises, economic, humanitarian, violence? That's a very good question, right? Because what we have not been able to see since the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moïse, and this is something that even existed before that, is Haitians coming around the table and agreeing on, you know, some solutions. I mean, one of the solution or part of the solution that's been presented is this idea of getting foreign assistance on the ground to help strengthen your police so that they can provide some sort of quote-unquote humanitarian corridor. But even in that, you see Haitians divided about that. And I think 
that that is the key. It's like trying to get Haitians to come around um, a set of goals or, you know, a set of decisions or some sort of direction to say, okay, here are the necessary steps that we're going to take in order to move this country along. You, you have an international community, which recently has turned to sanctions, but what they're really saying is we want reforms, you know? Um, so I think that's the real challenge for Haitians today. Those who really do recognize what's happening and recognize that it can't continue to go on, sort of being able to compromise. And that's what the international community is asking. Is that going to happen in the new year? I don't know, because what's going to happen as of the second Monday in January is you're going to be looking at a country where there's absolutely not one elected official. Today, there are 10 elected um, members of the Senate, which is usually 30 people. Well, their mandates run out as of the second Monday. So you're looking at a country that is going to be faced with two choices, that it's either going to fall deeper and deeper into crisis and chaos, or it's going to elevate itself to say, okay, enough already. Let's figure out how to pull ourselves out of this and let's start to take the steps to do that. Miami Herald reporter Jacqueline Charles on the very dire situation in Haiti. Thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, the Rohingya refugees who've arrived in Indonesia from Myanmar needing medical attention. Also, food banks sound the alarm over inflation, saying donations aren't going as far as they used to. Remember, stay informed with all that is happening in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or just headed out the door to work. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Airlines are still struggling to recover from the major snowstorm that hit much of the nation over the weekend. More than 2,800 flights have been canceled for today, including more than 2,500 Southwest Airlines flights. Southwest Senior Director Jay McVeigh told KTRK that it's hard to get the crews where they're needed. With those cancellations and as a result, we end up with flight crews and airplanes that are out of place and not in the cities that they need to be in to continue to run our operations. So that is ultimately exactly how we ended up where we are. Nationwide, at least 49 people died from weather-related causes. Upstate New York, which is accustomed to brutal winters, reports at least 27 people died in the Buffalo area. Ukraine's foreign minister says the United Nations should host a peace summit in February, which would mark one year since the Russian invasion. However, he does not want Russia to take part, and it's unlikely that the summit will take place. NPR's Ulian Hadar has more. Yeah, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has expressed frustration with the UN. He's repeatedly chastised them for being ineffective. 
He partially blames that on the fact that Russia has a seat on the Security Council, something that Ukraine is trying to get taken away from Russia. I think Ukraine is, especially here at the UN, trying to shore up international support as the war grinds into its second winter. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. China is reopening its borders after nearly three years of COVID restrictions. Starting January 8th, travelers to China will no longer have to be quarantined. The Chinese government will also downgrade the classification of COVID to Category B from the current top level. The death toll from the explosion of an oil tanker in South Africa on Christmas Eve has risen to 18. Kate Bartlett reports the accident took place outside a hospital in Johannesburg. The incident is being investigated and the driver of the tanker has been arrested, President Cyril Ramaphosa said in a statement. It's believed the vehicle got stuck trying to drive under a low-level bridge. Vincent Maguena, Ramaphosa's spokesman, said some of the victims were hospital patients, hospital staff and children, while firefighters were among the injured. The nation's hearts go out to everyone affected by this devastating incident. Families whose nearby homes were destroyed by the blast are being relocated. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. In the U.S., by one measure, holiday sales rose this year. MasterCard's spending pulse tracks all kinds of payments, including cash and debit cards. It says sales were up 7.6% this year. And this is less than last year's increase, but more than analysts had expected, and despite higher costs due to inflation. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The chief executive of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts officially steps down this week after more than a decade in the job. Andrew Dreyfus played a critical role in pushing for expanded health care access across the state and around the country. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey spoke with him ahead of his departure. Dreyfus says he's proud of his work to reform health care, but he acknowledges that care is still too expensive and that many people delay medical appointments because they can't afford their insurance deductibles. We can't take our foot off the pedal here. Health care costs are still growing rapidly. Dreyfus says he's learned this lesson over a long career. Change takes time and big change takes a long time. The work of tackling health costs and equity will now fall to Blue Cross's new CEO, Sarah Islin. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Police in Manchester, New Hampshire say a baby is safe after its mother gave birth outdoors, then misled officers about the baby's location. Investigators say the baby boy was eventually found after about an hour of questioning and searching. He was taken to a hospital for treatment. The mother was arrested on an unrelated child endangerment warrant. Members of Worcester City Council are urging the head of the local transit network to meet with them next week. They say they want to know more about the Worcester Regional Transit Authority's plans to deal with snow removal at bus stops this winter. The Telegram and Gazette reports Administrator Dennis Lipka is open to meeting, but claims his agency is not responsible for shoveling sidewalks. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. In sports, Celtics will take on Houston tonight over at the Garden. Team tips off against the Rockets at 7.30. Meantime, the Bruins will hit the ice in Canada. They're matched up against the Ottawa Senators. 
with the puck drop at 7 p.m. In the forecast, it'll be mostly sunny and clear today. Highs in the mid-30s. Increasing clouds to 9 temperatures in the low 20s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy. Temperatures in the upper 30s, low 40s. And Thursday, mostly sunny with highs in the mid-40s. Right now, it is 26 degrees in Boston at 735. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at AJWS. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. A boat carrying more than 180 Rohingya refugees has arrived in Indonesia. It's the second boat with refugees to do so in recent days. These members of the stateless, persecuted Muslim minority have been drifting for weeks without food or water before reaching shore. They fled from Bangladesh, where about a million Rohingya live in refugee camps after escaping a deadly military-led campaign targeting them in Myanmar. Joining us now is Babur Baluch, a spokesman for the UN Refugee Agency. First off, uh, can you tell us in what state these refugees arrived in Indonesia? Thank you for having me. Uh, these desperate people who arrived uh, over the last two days are in bad shape, actually. Dehydrated, many of them being adrift for a month in those choppy uh, waves uh, without anything, uh, without any help as well. So the first thing UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, my colleagues, local communities and authorities had to do was try to give them urgent attention. Many of them needed medical help and majority of these people that landed yesterday ashore in Indonesia are women and children. Were they at least relieved to be away from Myanmar? Uh, they are relieved to be on safe land uh, and remember uh, as we have been saying they have been adrift for a month and when we say adrift for a month it means they have been on a rickety wooden boat which is not fit for sea travel at all there have been reports of engine breakdowns on this uh, boat that we are talking this was specifically 200 on one boat out of 200 174 arrived yesterday 26 lost their lives during this ordeal. Government officials said today in Bangladesh they're trying to stop refugees from risking their lives. This group of refugees made it to shore, others did not. What is your latest estimate on how many Rohingya refugees have died trying to make the journey? Indeed, there can be a collective effort to restore hope in, in refugees' lives. And when we talk about these movements, uh, there are reports that these are happening from Bangladesh, from Myanmar, but there is a reason for this happening. These are people who have to find safety and protection, and there are no legal ways for them to 
do that. Many of them see no hope for themselves in the refugee camp uh, where UNHCR, us, with the local Bangladeshi authorities and communities have been working. Let's not forget that Bangladesh has been a generous host for a million uh, Rohingya refugees. Uh, but these Rohingya refugees need humanitarian support to continue uh, their lives. As a refugee, when you don't see uh, any kind of light at the end of the tunnel, you don't know what future holds for you. It just aggravates that sense of desperation and added to that complex and difficult situation are the human smugglers and traffickers who are ready to prey on these desperate people. And this is worth it. When you when you say there's there's no hope, or at least they have no hope in their situation, how bad is their situation in Bangladesh? Uh, inside the camps where uh, you have uh, a million people being supported day and night by local authorities in Bangladesh, the humanitarians, UNICEF, the UN Refugee Agency, uh, but we are not getting internationally the required help. We need to take care of these people. Remember, many of them are children. You have women there. So there is people's future at stake as well. A uh, majority of them, more than 700,000, arrived in 2017 uh, from Myanmar, five years on, uh, on. They don't know what's going to happen to them. So we have to collectively, uh, and this is not only a call on the regional state, this is a global call to invest in these desperate refugees' lives uh, so they see a future for themselves. We have been asking but if, for But if they stay, I guess what I'm asking is if they stay, what do they face? What, what kinds of threats are they facing if they stay? Uh, they are currently uh, at a location which is uh, very overcrowded. We have been continuously working to improve it. Uh, remember, uh, Bangladesh is one of the most densely uh, populated uh, countries. Uh, land is an issue, but even uh, after that, uh, they have been able uh, to step forward and host these refugees. What is not there is equal responsibility, sharing and support globally from the international community. That's uh, Babur Baluch, spokesman for the UN Refugee Agency. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Food banks in the U.S. are feeling the pinch of inflation. The rising cost of groceries is forcing more people to seek help and making it more expensive for food banks to keep their shelves stocked. Ikta Prakash says some are having to cut back. She's the CEO of CAPI, a Minnesota nonprofit that serves immigrants and refugees in the Twin Cities. If we were giving like two bags of bread, now we will give one bag of bread. If we are giving 20 LBs of rice, now we are going to give only 10 LBs of rice. So the poundage of food is also reducing. Prakash says her organization is struggling to keep up with the growing demand. Every week we are seeing eight to ten new enrollments at our food shelf. I think about how are we going to cover the cost of food. And I remember there were days on Friday we used to have extra food. We'll do a bonus Friday, but not anymore. Food banks are facing shortages even as overall giving has stayed pretty consistent, according to Blackbot Institute, a group that tracks philanthropy. Again, you can blame inflation. The money just isn't going as far. Lucy Lebois is still trying to make the best of it as she sets up for distribution. She's one of the founders of the DC Food Project. That's the produce. We organize everything by numbers. We have very specific numbers per school. Our volunteers come, we pack cars, and everyone goes. She says fundraising has dropped since the beginning of the pandemic. 
Everyone was hoping and wanting to help if they could. And so we were able to raise money as fast as we were spending it. And there are many organizations competing for donations. People, even if they're generous, may want to donate to other causes. I think the food insecurity story was a really big one during the pandemic. And unfortunately, it still exists. And in fact, it's worse than before the pandemic. But the fundraising piece of it is challenging. For some food banks, this holiday season has been one of the most challenging as the need in the community is as high as it was during the worst moments of the pandemic. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, the police officers volunteering as driving instructors in Minnesota as part of a school program to get more teen drivers on the road legally and safely. Then next hour, the lifting of strict COVID rules in China and the reopening of its borders. Forecast says it'll be mostly sunny today. Highs in the mid-30s. Clear skies overnight, temperatures dropping to the upper teens, low 20s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy skies, highs right around 40 degrees. Thursday, mostly sunny and warmer, highs in the mid-40s. Friday, more sunshine, highs in the upper 40s. And Saturday should be mostly cloudy with a chance for afternoon showers, highs in the lower 50s. Right now, 27 degrees in Boston at 745. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, catering diplomatic receptions, corporate celebrations, milestone events, and public galas in Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Artisanal cuisine and a focus on logistics. UncommonFeasts.com. Gather around. Let's feast. Now business news, a South End liquor store is encouraging the wine industry to do more to support black-owned businesses. T.J. Douglas is founder and CEO of Urban Grape. He says introducing new products from business owners of color hasn't been easy because Massachusetts has a three-tier system for producers, wholesalers, and retailers. I can't buy from a winery. I have to buy from a wholesaler. I have to make that introduction with the wholesaler to the winery. Douglas says those introductions have allowed him to offer dozens of selections of wine from black-owned producers. He's proud of that but says the industry as a whole has more work to do. We care more, right? It's the intentionality of what we're trying to do. Douglas says thoughtfulness from the industry and consumers will make the difference. Two New England resorts are among the best for traveling families. That's according to a new report by Good Housekeeping. Smuggler's Notch Resort in Vermont and Hidden Pond in Maine both made the cut. It's 746. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the ECMC Foundation at ECMCFoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. 
Learning to drive can be a liberating experience for young people and their parents, but some families don't have the time or money for driver's education. In Minnesota, Rochester Public Schools have found a solution. Police officers are volunteering their time to give driving lessons. Minnesota Public Radio's Katherine Richard reports. It's a couple of days after Rochester's first big snow and it's Joyce Belafonte's first winter drive. Do you um, have any information about driving on um, snow and slush? Yeah, you should drive slower. <laughs> That's Rochester Police Department investigator Chantal Powell, one of 20 cops volunteering to help students learn to drive. On this day, she's working with 17-year-old Belafonte, who needs 50 hours of practice to get her license. Take turns and everything slower than what you, you know, normally would. Um, yeah, that's a cop in the passenger seat, part of a program to get more teens on the road legally and safely. A recent school district survey of driver's ed students found almost a third had driven without a license. Aaron Vasquez, an administrator at one of the participating high schools, says that can be for a lot of reasons. Their parents can't drive them. They need to get a job. They want to see friends. You know, if a student gets a ticket, and if they're unable to pay that ticket, then it kind of snowballs. And then sometimes they get buried in fines. Sometimes they don't have access to employment because they don't have the ability to drive. So last spring, with more than $117,000 in grants and cars donated by the county, the first driver's ed class began. Students pay what they can afford instead of the regular $400 class fee. That's a game changer for 15-year-old Ajulu Otho, who moved here recently from Kenya. There, many people didn't drive because they couldn't afford cars. So Otho sees a license as a way to get a job to help support her family financially. Because my dad is the only one working right now. My mom just had a baby and she can't work. So this is a really big thing for us. Welcome. All right. Um, did everybody get a booklet? At Century High School, teacher Chris Jones says the driver's ed class is intense. Three hours a day for 10 days. The big barrier is getting the driving hours in. They have to have 50 hours in uh, before they can take their, their license exam. And that's where the Rochester Police Department steps in. When kids don't have a car for practice or an adult who can drive them, a police officer teaches them the ropes. Chief Jim Franklin says the new partnership helps get in front of a host of problems that can lead to crime and poverty, like not being able to drive to a job or an after-school activity. And he says it's helping cops and young people get to know each other at a time when tensions can be high between law enforcement and people in the neighborhoods they police. There certainly is a community connectedness aspect to it, which does lead to building trust and legitimacy. Uh, but there's also a traffic safety uh, nexus, having cops teach kids to be better drivers, which is extremely important for this community. Back at her lesson, the rapport between Belafonte and Powell is clear. Belafonte calls Powell her cop lady, and Powell knows all about a tragedy in Belafonte's past. Her older brother was driving when he died in a car accident in 2017. He didn't have his license yet. I wouldn't say boys and stupid decisions. I would just say young kids and making decisions that they think will turn out good, and sometimes they just don't. Bella Font keeps driving. Powell reminds her to use her turn signal and then tells her she's doing great. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Richard in Rochester, Minnesota. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. 
Coming up, Christian rapper Lecrae talks about his new mixtape called Church Clothes 4 and how he connects with millennials. Then in 20 minutes, Berkeley College of Music's Indian Ensemble wins a Grammy, nom- Grammy nomination for its first album, fusing Indian music with other genres. The time is 7.51. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, we are plating some of our favorite conversations this year with local chefs. One used his talents to feed refugees from the war in Ukraine. One pivoted in the pandemic and is trying to improve the lives of restaurant staff. And two are taking the Food Network by storm. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In the forecast, it will be sunshine today, temperatures in the mid-30s, mostly clear overnight tonight, lows dropping to about 20 degrees. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, highs in the upper 30s, low 40s with a gusty wind at times. Thursday, back to sunshine, highs in the mid-40s. Friday, still sunny, upper 40s, and Saturday should be mostly cloudy with showers later in the day, highs in the low to mid-50s. Right now, 27 degrees in Boston at 752. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. Hip-hop artist Lecrae raps about Jesus and Christianity on his new mixtape, Church Clothes 4. This music compilation that's looser and freer than a studio album explores racism, problems in the church, police brutality, and abortion. I spoke with Lecrae earlier about when he became a Christian. I was 17. I had a pregnancy scare. I had gotten in some trouble with the, with the law. I got arrested, was immature. Being a, a rebellious kind of mischievous kid, didn't grow up with his father and started asking some some questions about purpose about life and that led me down a religious journey and that's where i heard uh the message of christ and was you know had a spiritual transformation so how did hearing the message of christ lead you into hip-hop that's a funny story my uncles were big into hip-hop they you know they were kind of kids in the 80s and hip-hop was this phenomenon you know my mother worked at a halfway house and um some of the, the the guys who would get out of prison, they were listening to hip-hop, and they would give me mixtapes. So by the time I'm 19 years old, which is when I had my spiritual transformation, I was already, like, a product of the culture of hip-hop. It was just now, like, how do I articulate this newfound worldview that I had and these new values with the same kind of skill set and, and, and form of expression that I had grown up with? Because I think most people don't automatically associate hip-hop and Christianity <laughs> no <laughs> yeah they're, they're they're legitimately two different worlds hip-hop is you know this kind of anti-establishment uh, movement that was formed by these rebellious kids and so oftentimes Christianity in America looks like establishment it looks political it looks um, you know like restrictions I'm still in America where church is a Broadway production for relevance traded the kingdom to build an empire so people don't trust us apparently we worship economy we'll kill our own babies to keep our autonomy you mess with our second amendment we probably gonna ride but take out the probably and so they they don't really mesh well together and hip-hop speaks to the social issues whereas christianity hasn't really done much of that since the civil rights movement so when your first album real talk came out in 2004 who was that audience that really latched onto it so initially, I mean, it was this very small niche of kids within hip-hop who 
had become Christians. Similar to mainstream hip-hop, the suburbs got a hold of it. And so you've now got these suburban kind of evangelical kids who are like, we found something that our parents will let us listen to. And we pray, we pray, we pray. Every day, every day, every day. And we pray, we pray, Was there ever a time when things maybe got uh, slightly uncomfortable? When, say, maybe you started speaking out on on things that uh, Christians might not be too keen on listening to, uh, say, racial justice. I had that innate sense that I was here for the needs of the marginalized and disenfranchised. And so to see a Michael Brown get killed, regardless of of his background, um, for me was traumatizing and devastating. And I thought that, you know, I could just share that with my Christian brothers and sisters, regardless of their ethnicity, via social media, the pain that I was experiencing. And I was met with such, like, criticism and blowback. I was confused. What were people most critical of? They began to think I was a Marxist or some kind of apostate who was veering from the faith and and a heretic, caring more about ethnicity and race than faith. So, Lecrae, I I used to be very, very involved in the Christian church for a long time, into my early 20s. And one of the things I remember about it the most is that when you finally give your life to Jesus Christ, you kind of everything about you melts away and you're no longer who you were before. Now you're a follower of Christ. So it doesn't matter if you're like me, brown, or if you're you, black, that goes away and now you become a different kind of being. Was that something that that you heard or is that something that you kind of came up against? Yeah, um, I, I, I think that was implied, right? Because people would say things like, we don't see color, you know, we're all... Um, covered by the blood of Jesus. And so um, it was kind of this this idea that we're all unified, which is very utopian, um, but it's not a reality. You know, the reality is people do see my color. They do see, they do have biases once they see us. I can't explain the 400 years of chattel slavery in America. Maybe God did that so that we could know Jesus. And, you know, you just start start kind of washing away any kinds of, thoughts that would have some cultural or ethnic implications. But it did begin to create a lot of internal strife for me. Now, okay, so this brings us to Church Close 4. It's the uh, the fourth volume in a series of mixtapes that started in the summer of 2012. The first song of Church Close 4 opens up. R.I.P. Breonna Taylor, R.I.P. to George Floyd. I ain't trying to hate on my own kind, but why not gain my only choice? And Herschel either, I love believers, but some of these folks don't rep the kingdom. You mentioned Breonna Taylor, you mentioned George Floyd. When Christians hear that, do they embrace the message that you're trying to put out, or, or is this one thing that makes them kind of like cringe a little bit in their seat? Oh, they definitely cringe. You know, if you're from the more conservative evangelical ilk, uh, you're cringing at that because there's a whole um, kind of campaign against bringing up um, any type of ethnic trauma. It's wokeness. It's CRT. I'm not lionizing them. I'm humanizing them and and making sure that we can see them. So Church Closed 4 is the fourth in a series of mixtapes that you've put out over the years. Is this some kind of end of the road or end of the race I think, um, obviously, like you said, it's a series. Um, it doesn't mean I'll, I won't make music anymore. It just means this particular series has come to an end. It's kind of like, hey, let me let me kind of close out this series speaking to 
some of the things that need to be addressed within the within the church um, and to the outside world. And when you say, Lord, help me kill all my demons. Lord, help me kill all my demons. I look in the mirror, I seen them. I had a beat my forced to get an abortion. I pray when I die, I can meet them. They Are you talking about demons in the past, present, and the ones you might face in the future? Because I think no matter what, whether you're a believer or not, you're going to have demons. They won't catch me like it's... Yeah, you absolutely nailed it. Um, this is an admittance of my imperfection. And I'm not a Christian because I'm I'm the model citizen. I'm a Christian because I know the depth of my kind of depravity and 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 the thoughts and the, the things that go on with me. And I do need consistent help. I do need a savior. So um, yeah, it's, it's saying I realize I'm going to be dealing with trouble. I'm going to deal with issues for the rest of my life. That's rapper Lecrae. His new mixtape is called Church Clothes for Lecrae. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I appreciate it. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. Three years after the first COVID cases in Wuhan, China moves to reopen its borders under looser COVID protocols. It's Tuesday, December 27th, and this is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming out the latest from China and what it has been like for those with COVID in the country in recent weeks since the end of China's zero COVID policies. Almost immediately, friends around me People in my social media started reporting that they were getting COVID. Also this hour, how the IRS failed to audit then-President Trump's taxes in his first two years in office. And the Berklee College of Music's Indian Ensemble, which fuses Indian music with other genres, gets a Grammy nomination for their first album. We love all these ways to kind of stretch the genres and stretch our own musical ideas with these songs. Forecast is sunny, highs in the mid-30s. It's 8.01. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Officials in western New York are warning that they'll prosecute anyone involved in looting in the wake of a massive winter storm that has paralyzed the region. NPR's Brian Mann reports the death toll in the Buffalo area has risen to at least 27. Buffalo is slowly digging out, aided by President Biden's decision declaring a federal emergency. But a travel ban remains in place in some areas. And Mayor Byron Brown said at a press conference he's troubled by reports of looting. So these aren't even people in distress. These are people that are taking advantage of a natural disaster and the suffering of many in our community to take what they want. Upstate New York is expected to get another blast of snow today with the area around Buffalo forecast for at least three inches and Jefferson and Lewis counties facing around half a foot of additional snow. Brian Mann, NPR News in upstate New York. Severe weather continues to impact air travel across the United States. Southwest Airlines is being blamed for the majority of cancellations and delays. NPR's Ashley on reports Southwest canceled nearly 3,000 flights on Monday and another 2,500 today. The chaos has left people stranded at airports across the country. Many of them don't know where their bags are or when they can get home. Photos and videos from airports in Houston, Denver and Baltimore have circulated on social media, showing overwhelmed baggage claim areas and long lines at reservation counters. A Southwest spokesperson attributed the cancellations to lingering effects of the winter storm and problems connecting flight crews to their schedules. The airline's customers say those excuses aren't enough. One expert called the situation a full-blown meltdown. 
Ashley On, NPR News. The Biden administration is pushing for the Chinese-owned social media site TikTok to be sold to an American company. NPR's Bobby Allen reports the site is undergoing a national security review in Washington. More than 100 million Americans use TikTok, which is powered by a highly personal algorithm that has become the envy of Silicon Valley. But bipartisan concerns have grown about whether the Chinese government could use the app to spy on Americans or disseminate pro-China views. The Wall Street Journal first reported that White House officials are pushing for a forced sale of TikTok. But the app's leadership are countering with a proposal for Americans' data to be overseen by a separate subsidiary managed by U.S. tech company Oracle. Under a provision of the recently passed spending bill, TikTok is now banned on the government-issued phones of all federal employees. Bobby Allen, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. China says it's planning to resume visa applications for mainland residents to travel overseas. The decision, which takes effect on January 8th, marks a significant easing of the nation's strict coronavirus guidelines, which have been in place since 2020. China also announced on Monday that it will no longer require people to quarantine upon arrival. Inbound travelers will only be asked to show a negative COVID test result obtained within two days before departure. Two Russian citizens have reportedly died in mysterious circumstances in India. NPR's Lauren Frere reports local media say one of them is a Russian lawmaker who had recently criticized the war in Ukraine. Indian media described Pavel Antov as a multimillionaire who made his fortune in sausage. He was apparently celebrating his birthday on vacation in eastern India when he fell to his death from a hotel window. Two days later, one of his traveling companions was found dead in the same hotel. In a statement to Indian TV, the Russian embassy in Delhi called it a tragedy and said police have found no evidence of foul play. But local media say police are continuing to investigate that because Antov had apparently criticized Vladimir Putin in recent days, calling his invasion of Ukraine, quote, terror. The deaths happened last week but were only reported today, and the bodies have already been cremated. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Mumbai. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Experts say the rate of economic growth will slow down in Massachusetts in the coming decades. The percentage of the population age 65 and older is set to almost double by 2050. That means more people will retire or work fewer hours. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer has more. The state's workforce has been shrinking because of fewer births and more people leaving the state. Mark Melnick of the UMass Donahue Institute says public policy can help curb an economic slowdown if Massachusetts can increase the employment rates among certain groups, such as formerly incarcerated people, people with disabilities, and veterans. Aside from it being a immoral obligation to try to help uh, these populations be better engaged in the labor market, it's going to be a necessity for businesses in the state in order to be able to grow in the future. There are almost 88,000 fewer people in the Massachusetts workforce than there were three years ago. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmeen Ammer. An Ashland doctor charged with participating in the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol buildings due in court today. 
Federal prosecutors say Jacqueline Starrer illegally entered the U.S. Capitol and punched a police officer. She was arrested last week. She'll attend her hearing in Washington today by a video conference. Some patients at Massachusetts hospitals who are ready to be discharged are having to wait because they don't have a guardian to sign off for them. A guardian is a family member, friend, or court-appointed person who can make medical decisions for a patient. The Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association tells the Boston Globe it estimates more than 100 people are stuck in hospitals because they don't have a guardian. Massachusetts will begin teaching student drivers about cannabis in the new year. The state's introducing a 25-minute module on the subject to drivers' ed classes. Colleen Ogilvie is registrar of motor vehicles. She says the new curriculum is similar to pre-existing modules on alcohol and driving. This is not intended to um, be any negative statement about the use of marijuana. We certainly understand it's legal in Massachusetts. This is intended to inform teens. Massachusetts will be the first state with legal recreational cannabis to incorporate the cannabis-impaired driving curriculum. It's 808. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by professional pastry arts at BU's programs in food and wine, teaching the classic and advanced techniques behind making the perfect flaky buttery treats. Study with world-class bakers and learn what it takes to launch a food-related career in just 14 weeks. More at bu.edu slash foodandwine slash pastry. In sports, Celtics are gearing up for a home game tonight against the Houston Rockets. Celtics are looking to extend their streak to three wins in a row. Tip-off at 7.30. Bruins will hit Canadian ice tonight in their road game against the Ottawa Senators. The puck drops there at 7. In the forecast, it'll be mostly sunny skies today. Highs in the mid-30s. Increasing clouds tonight. Temperatures dropping to the lower 20s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy. Temperatures in the upper 30s, low 40s. And Thursday should be mostly sunny. Highs in the mid-40s. Right now, it is 27 degrees in Boston at 8.09. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. China is reopening to the rest of the world after nearly three years of closed borders. It just announced that starting in January, it'll no longer require hotel quarantines for inbound travelers. The U-turn comes as the country battles an enormous wave of COVID infections nationwide, a surge that has overwhelmed hospitals and ambulance service, even in the capital of Beijing. Joining us now is NPR's Emily Fang. Emily, why this sudden change? Because I remember earlier this year, you were reporting that China was still requiring two weeks of quarantine for anyone who wants to go into the country. Right. But the difference is right now, China is going through a huge wave of COVID itself right now. And it's also gone through this massive and sudden about face on COVID policy. This is so sudden, just to give you an example, earlier this month, parts of Beijing were still on lockdown because of a few dozen cases. Now China says it's opening up, however, and it just doesn't make sense to quarantine people when you're seeing millions of new cases daily in China already. And this move is in line with how government messaging has suddenly changed as well. Just earlier this month, they were saying still that COVID was this deadly Western-made virus. Now China's saying COVID and this Omicron variant that's been spreading across the country are no worse than a cold and people shouldn't be worried about it. And so on January 8th, COVID will be downgraded in seriousness as a virus. And 
All you need is a negative COVID test 48 hours before and a visa if you can get it, which China says it's going to start issuing again as well to enter the country. Oh, those are some pretty big changes. Um, China's borders have been closed for nearly three years now. How are people reacting to this news? Well, for the most part, people are enthused. So expect a lot of pent-up Chinese tourism to resume uh, next year in Europe, the U.S., Southeast Asia, as Chinese citizens can finally travel internationally again without a quarantine next year. Um, international students outside of China who were locked out when China's borders suddenly closed in early 2020 can now apply for visas and finally get back in and resume their studies. And academics and government officials who had to cut off their in-person exchanges tell me they're thrilled they'll finally be able to interact with people in China. It's one of the biggest, most important countries in the world. And these people want to get a sense of what's going on on the ground especially as politically China's relationship with the U.S. grew extremely tense throughout the pandemic. And one of the scholars I spoke to who was really excited to visit China again is Nissan Mahoubi. He's a research scholar at the University of Pennsylvania. In terms of various moments of crisis in U.S.-China relationship, the ballast of having all these uh, students, scholars, uh, going back and forth uh, very consistently and um, being able to share their perspectives uh, in the country that they were visiting and then come back and report on what they found in that country were enormously important. Other people in China say they're angry. You know, they're asking online, what was the point of nearly three years of painful lockdowns and onerous testing if China was just going to open up suddenly with very little preparation. And also don't expect a sudden rush of people going into China right now, because ironically, it's one of the most likely places you look at COVID right now. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Um, now, China is dealing with a huge number of infections. How are they holding up? They're not holding up very well. NPR spent the last month reporting on how hospitals there are extremely overcrowded, mostly from the sick elderly who fill the lobbies and quarters of hospitals we visited because beds there have just run out. The number of sick is so overwhelming that ambulance services have not been able to keep up. And the danger now is holiday travel into January means the virus is spreading from cities to rural areas where the healthcare system is often quite poor. And these are scenes I have to emphasize that are tragically familiar to us in the US and to the rest of the world as we struggled to deal with COVID earlier. But what's different is China bought itself time to prepare its healthcare system and vaccinate its elderly when it closed borders in 2020. And unfortunately, those preparations don't seem to be sufficient. That's NPR's Emily Fang. Emily, thanks. Thanks. All right, so how are people living in China under the new COVID policies? Rebecca Canther is an American expatriate living with her family in Shanghai. My children have dressed up for their radio interview, okay? <laughs> I got glasses. Yeah, okay. I got a belt. Okay, got it, okay. Her kids, 7-year-old Leo Canther Liu and 10-year-old Leona Canther Liu are attending class remotely from home. The government said we have to, like, gonna let go, no COVID testing anything. So a lot of people are getting COVID and that would affect the schools because a lot of the kids would get COVID because then they'll miss school. So they close school for the rest of them, like, so semester. My colleague Steve Inskeep asked the kids' mom how their world suddenly changed. Almost immediately, friends around me, people in my social media started reporting that they were getting COVID. It wasn't just a few people, it was just everybody. And bear in mind, you know, for three years, I haven't really known anyone in China, you know, just a few people who have gotten COVID. So it was really shocking to see the speed at which so many people around me were getting COVID. We had learned that 
when restrictions were lifted, many people were taking extra precautions and even not going outside if they could possibly avoid it because they were afraid of getting COVID. Yeah, I knew that it was going to be really fast because there's delivery, people going from door to door, you're going out, you're taking your kids to school. It was too fast. It was overwhelming. Has this dragged you back to an experience that many of us will recall from the early phase of the pandemic when it was hard to think or talk about anything else? Well, actually, to be honest, I feel like we've been talking about it nonstop. It's really, it's, it's dominated our, our thoughts. It's scary because a lot of people were not prepared and did not have medication at home. And so that's what a lot of people are posting on social media right now is how do I get medication? How do I get fever medication? It's not available in the pharmacies. That makes it much more scary for them. How has your daily routine changed for your family, if at all? Well, <laughs> I got COVID, so it changed drastically. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so, well, first, uh, before I got it, the schools, my daughter's class closed down because, gosh, it seems so strange to say this, but there was a close contact among a parent of a child. And because her class went online, uh, my son, who goes to the same school, was told he couldn't go to school anymore. So after about a week of that, the school decided all of our teachers are getting sick. So they just closed down the whole school. And uh, in the middle of that, I got COVID, then my kids got it. So it's, it's, been, a, it's been an interesting past week. How's everybody doing right now? Uh, I'm mostly getting better. My kids are, I think, probably have a couple more days um, before they're finally better. But I feel like we're seeing improvement. So there were a couple days where everyone had a fever and it wasn't very pleasant at all. But we're past that. We had an expert on the air the other day talking about the possibility, not the certainty, we don't know, but the possibility of hundreds of millions of people infected in China. Uh, scenarios that could be even worse than what's happening now. How are people viewing the immediate future? I think there's a lot of different feelings happening right now because it's, it's such a moment of flux right now. So people are experiencing life without all the controls that had been put in place over the past couple of years, where you couldn't really travel between provinces, you couldn't go without a few days of getting tested. So there's some, I guess, excitement about not having to be restricted in, in these ways, but then also fear of getting the virus. And so, you know, the streets right now in Shanghai are pretty much empty because a lot of people are staying home. They don't want to get sick. And then also, you know, fear for people's loved ones and Chinese New Year is coming up. And I know a lot of people, you know, were planning on visiting family. And now people are wondering, OK, is that is that smart to do? What's the next couple of months going to be like? Well, Rebecca Kanther, thanks for sharing a few details of your life. And I hope everybody in your family is well soon. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Do you feel like you're tipping more these days or that you're being asked to tip more often? Dipan Biswas, a marketing professor at the University of South Florida, says you are not alone. Over the last few years, we've seen the emergence of these digital kiosk systems that are very interactive in nature. Digital interfaces allowed companies to give the option to give tips. And companies figured out that this is a good way to get people to like pay more. 
Those digital interfaces he's talking about are the tablets and other screens that you see in coffee shops, restaurants, even automated car washes. This one says those interfaces, along with a shaky pandemic-era economy, have fueled an explosion in tipping. With inflation and wages not keeping up with inflation, companies are hoping that the tipping would make up for the difference because companies are looking for new ways to earn money. According to a survey conducted by CreditCards.com, the average person tips 20% at a sit-down restaurant, 17% for food delivery, and 15% for carryout. But often, you don't know where that tip is actually going. This one says there's an easy way to find out. Just ask. People uh, usually assume that that money is going to the server or the employee. Anything paid through the digital interface goes directly to the company's account. And it is up to the company and any contract they have in place that would determine how much of that money, if any at all, gets shared with the server or the employee. Just the word tip doesn't mean anything. With more places confronting customers with tips, you might be feeling a little bit of tip fatigue. We all have sort of a mental account of total tipping dollars we have in mind or in our budget. So my biggest concern is what's happening is with so many places asking for tips, the real people who actually rely on tipping for their livelihood, the restaurant service, they're the ones who would actually see the adverse effects of it. This law says that tipping shouldn't feel like an obligation and there's nothing wrong with considering your budget before you tip. One thing I would emphasize is don't just tip because of the guilt factor. Just because there's an option doesn't mean they should stretch their budget. This law says historically tipping was once a way of showing off your wealth, then it evolved into an incentive for good service. So you'd think 30 years after Mr. Pink says he doesn't believe in it, that we'd have some clarity on tipping. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on Morning Edition, the Indian Ensemble from Berklee College of Music earns a Grammy nomination for its first album. The group fuses various forms of Indian music with other genres. Later, the practice of billing parents whose children are in foster care. Coming up here on WBUR. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Avangrid, a clean energy company committed to accelerating Massachusetts climate goals by investing in offshore wind and hydroelectric energy designed to power 2 million homes every day and help reduce carbon emissions by 7 million tons. Believing that acting on climate change can't wait. I'm Scott Tong. Our go-to book expert, Tracy Thomas, registers her picks for the best books of 2022. One favorite is Imani Perry's South to America, won the National Book Award. It's sort of a travel log meets memoir and also a history book. And it's all framed through her understanding of the American South. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
In the forecast, it'll be mostly sunny skies today, highs in the mid-30s. Clear skies tonight, lows dropping to about 20 degrees. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, highs right around 40. Thursday, back to sunshine, highs in the mid-40s. Friday, mostly sunny again, upper 40s. And Saturday should be mostly cloudy with a chance of rain and highs in the lower 50s. Right now, 27 degrees in Boston at 822. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. This is NPR. It's WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Grammy Awards season is here, and as always, a slew of artists with ties to Berklee College of Music are among the nominees. But for the first time, the school submitted an in-house group's album, and it made the cut. WBUR's Andrea Shea has more on the Berkeley Indian Ensemble and its nominated debut. Listening to the Berkeley Indian Ensemble's music is like taking a trip across India through your ears with dozens of artists from around the world. Probably something like 130 people have been involved in the creation of this album called Shuruat, which is Hindi for beginning. Founder Annette Phillips says the ensemble's journey began more than a decade ago. When she arrived from India to study at Berkeley in 2006, she noticed her homeland's music was underrepresented. There were these little pockets where Indian music was being explored, but more from a theoretical side or just rhythms. After graduating, Philip became the school's first Indian musician on faculty. She recalls being given a blank canvas to create something new. It was a no-brainer for me. I, I said, well, we need to have a performing collective that, you know, is really exploring Indian music and folk music and Sufi traditions and Indo-jazz music and uh, Bollywood and contemporary and maybe originals in the future. You know, why not? Since 2010, about 500 students from 52 countries have studied, rearranged, and performed an array of Indian music. Philip also invited luminaries to work with the Berkeley Ensemble, including famed film composer A.R. Rehman. One of the songs we chose was a classic hit of Mr. Rehman's called Jia Jale. It's from the movie Dil Se. Things really took off for the ensemble after Berkeley posted a video of their recording session on YouTube. It just suddenly overnight went viral and I think within a week it had hit its first million. 
Phillips says 46% of Berkeley's YouTube subscribers live in India. This level of interest fueled momentum for touring and an album. Since 2016, an evolving army of students and alumni have recorded collaborations with other Indian stars, including Grammy-winning tabla master Zakir Hussain. He played on the ensemble's version of Lady L by his pioneering 1970s Indo-Jazz fusion group Shakti. When he came in, our ensemble members from Israel, Iran, Brazil, India, Poland, Australia, and Norway, they came up with this fantastic new arrangement. For the Tamil film song Sundari Pene, Phillips says the ensemble took a grunge-inspired approach. It has a fusion of progressive rock, konakol, which is South Indian rhythmic solfege, jazz reharmonizations, and of course, semi-classical Indian music. It also features Bollywood celebrity vocalist Shreya Koshal. We love all these ways to kind of stretch the genres and stretch our own musical ideas with these songs. After years of sleepless nights, Philip is thrilled the Berkeley Indian Ensemble's first album is finally out in the world. She's especially proud that during production, the group designed an equitable revenue system. We signed 98 contracts. And I think it's just important that this becomes the norm in the industry. Philip hopes this inclusive collaboration with artists from 39 countries proves people of the world can work together and that we're all more similar than we might realize. Maybe we don't need to define ourselves so much. You know, maybe our identity could be one of a wanderer, one of an explorer, one of someone who's just waiting to experience all that life has to give. And I, I mean, for me, we're just meant to be expansive beings. We are expansive beings. <laughs> The Berkeley Indian Ensemble members will find out if their debut album wins the Grammy for Best Global Music Album on February 5th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, how it took so long for the IRS to audit then-President Donald Trump's taxes the first two years he was in office. Also, why some bad bunny lines are one NPR podcaster's lyrics of the year coming up here on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. 
The death toll from the weekend winter storm is now at least 49, with about half the reported deaths occurring around Buffalo, New York. Longtime Buffalo resident Alice Campania was at home with his wife when the storm hit, then came a knock at the door. They said, we're part of a tour group from South Korea, and we have 10 people uh, in our vehicle. And I said, get all of them inside our house right now, because the road was too dangerous to be on, uh, and the snow was falling too hard. The storm affected much of the nation with power outages and road closures. The airlines are still trying to recover. More than 2,800 flights have been canceled for today, most of them operated by Southwest Airlines. According to media reports from India, two Russian citizens, including a lawmaker, have died while on vacation in India. The lawmaker had reportedly criticized Vladimir Putin in recent weeks. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Mumbai. A Russian lawmaker identified as Pavel Antov reportedly fell from his hotel window in eastern India. Reports say he was there on vacation. They also say he'd recently criticized the Russian invasion of Ukraine. One of his traveling companions was found dead at the same hotel two days later. This happened last week but was only reported today and the bodies have apparently already been cremated. This is NPR News from Washington. The South Korean military scrambled jets and fired warning shots yesterday when North Korean drones crossed into South Korean airspace. The drones flew over several South Korean cities, including the capital, Seoul. Taiwan's president announced today that young men will soon have to perform a full year of compulsory military service. It's now four months. Asha's Valentine reports. President Tsai Ing-wen said four months wasn't enough to prepare for a potential Chinese invasion. She said changes would take effect in 2024, along with better training and increased pay. Recent polls show a majority of Taiwanese people support the move. The decision also follows a $10 billion U.S. commitment for Taiwan's military that President Biden signed into law last Friday. Yesterday, Taiwan reported the largest incursion yet of Chinese aircraft into its air defense identification zone, a total of 71 aircraft, including fighter jets and drones. For NPR News, this is Ashish Valentine in Taipei. Police in Tacoma, Washington, are investigating the vandalization of four power substations over the weekend. Thousands of homes and businesses lost electrical service. Earlier this month, vandals attacked power substations in North Carolina, causing widespread outages. Federal officials say the power grid needs to be better protected against domestic terrorists. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The effects of hundreds of flight cancellations over the holiday weekend are still rippling through Logan Airport this morning. Like right now, the flight tracking website FlightAware says there are just over 40 flight cancellations at the airport. 80% of those are Southwest Airlines flights. Southwest was forced to cancel nearly 3,000 flights across the country because of Friday's storms. But the Federal Department of Transportation says the airline's cancellation rate is unacceptable regardless. It says it is looking into the issue. Last week, a jury acquitted Harvard's former fencing coach of bribery charges. Peter Brand was accused of selling his house for well above market value to a wealthy businessman in exchange for recruiting the man's sons to the Harvard fencing team. 
The case was not part of the Varsity Blues scandal that sent celebrities like Felicity Huffman and Lori Loughlin to prison. But WBUR's Rob Lane reports it raises similar questions as to what someone can and cannot legally do to win their kid a spot at an elite university. Criminal law is not nuanced, especially when it comes to white-collar crime. That's according to WBUR legal analyst Nancy Gertner. She says the law is a blunt instrument aimed at egregious rule breakers, and that creates ambiguity that wealthy people have been exploiting for a long time. We don't regard it as bribery. If you endowed a library in your name the same year that your children were trying to get into that college, we regard that actually as capitalism. Gertner says the Harvard fencing case is similar. Ultimately, the jury couldn't be convinced that the coach wouldn't have recruited the businessman's sons if no financial favors had been exchanged. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Massachusetts stores are now in one of the biggest retail weeks of the year. Retailers Association of Massachusetts President John Hurst says the week between Christmas and New Year's can account for more than 10% of a shop's seasonal sales. He says people are typically outspending cash and gift cards they got for the holidays. And as stores clear out their inventory, Hearst says bargain-conscious shoppers could also score. As the, the next season of inventory starts coming in and, and filling up your, your stock rooms and your displays, it is important for the stores, and it's also a nice draw for the consumers. Hearst expects more shoppers than usual will be out buying necessities over splurges as inflation sets in. It's 8.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR. In sports, the Bruins are on the road tonight as they look to extend a four-game winning streak. They'll look to make it five in a row at 7 o'clock against the Ottawa Senators. Celtics are at home at the Garden tonight as they host the Houston Rockets. That game getting underway at 7.30. In the forecast, it'll be mostly sunny today, highs in the mid-30s. Increasing clouds tonight, temperatures dropping to about 20 degrees. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy. Highs in the upper 30s, low 40s. And Thursday, mostly sunny with highs in the mid-40s. Right now, 27 degrees in Boston at 836. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Noom a personalized weight loss program designed to give people knowledge to set new goals and the tools to stick to them for good. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Ian Martinez. Is the IRS obligated to audit the president? Agency procedures say yes. And both former President Barack Obama and President Joe Biden say the department audited their tax returns regularly. Not so for former President Donald Trump. During his first two years in office, the IRS failed to audit him. Here to tell us uh, what this could mean, we're joined by Nina Olson. She served as the IRS's National Taxpayer Advocate from 2001 to 2019. So, Nina, what would your concerns be about this uh, discrepancy between how presidents were audited? 
Well, you know, the um, mandatory audit program, which is just an administrative rule, so it's not congressional, it's not part of the law, but it is mandatory, and it's in the IRS procedures that are instructions to its staff, and it mandatory means mandatory. Um, so the concern there is that it took until April 3rd, 2019, to actually begin to audit one of the returns that had been um, that had been filed preceding um, the president's accession to office, um, and it wasn't until 20, September 2019 that an actual mandatory audit was started, and that was the only mandatory audit that occurred during the years of his presidency. Um, and that just means why was it that the IRS waited until 2019 to commence a mandatory audit? And um, why was only one of all of the years that were being audited designated as such? I do want to say he, you know, the president had said, the former president had said that he was constantly under audit, and mm -hmm. the records that we now have show that he, you know, 2009 to 2013 were under audit, 2014 was under audit, the 2015 year was started the day that um, Chairman Neal asked for records, um, and it wasn't until 2016 return that was designated as a mandatory audit program. So all of those years were under audit, just were they under the mandatory audit. So do you think then, Nina, because you know the IRS well, do you think that everyone kind of just went through exactly what you said and, and thought, well, he's being audited, so I guess it's happening, or maybe just looked around and said, someone's going to do it, right? <laughs> well, you know, I find the, the timing of the audits inexplicable. Um, you would think that because it is a special provision, and as the records kept saying, this is sensitive, that it's sensitive in two ways. You know, you need to, you don't want to be accused. The IRS bends over backward to not be accused of being politically um you know, motivated. Um, on the other hand, you've also got to treat it so that if there's a rule that says you're going to do a mandatory audit, then you better do the mandatory audit or it looks politically motivated that you're not doing the audit. And so you really need to hew to those provisions. And um, in this instance, they didn't. I think what's, what is interesting is um, they, it seems like they tried to follow through their normal procedures. They were confronted with a highly complex return. They kept noting in the files that there were over 400 what we call pass-through entities. Um, which might have been Schedule C, sole proprietorships, um, uh, uh, partnerships, limited liability companies, all of which report some income but then pass it through to the actual taxpayer, underlying taxpayer, in this case the former president. So it's sort of like a spider web of relationships, <laughs> which requires a lot of looking at, which is partly why... Um, maybe some of the returns were selected late because they hadn't wrapped up the earlier yeah. returns and items on the earlier returns would influence the later returns. But Nina, reportedly only one person was assigned to the, to the job. And just what yeah. you described in the last 30, 45 seconds, that sounds like it's a more than a one-person job. Yeah, well, that was actually a subject of dispute between the representatives and the IRS when they finally started doing some of these later year returns. 
that the, they, they, the IRS wanted to add two more revenue agencies, or what we call the, the most sophisticated auditors. And um, that was a quest, you know, you're increasing the staffing by 300%. Normally, you may have one person assigned to do what they call a risk assessment on the return. What items are you going to look at? Here, they went ahead and had one person want to expand. Congress recommended, the Ways and Means Committee recommended a format for future um, presidential audits, including codifying this provision, but having at least two revenue agents and then a team of specialists. That's Nina Olson, Executive Director of the Center for Taxpayer Rights. Nina, thank you very much. Thank you. A clever piece of writing can inspire people, maybe change a few minds, and when it's embedded in a global hit song, it can get the world talking. We've asked some of the folks at NPR Music, what was the one lyric you heard in 2022 that stood out more than any other? My name is Ana Maria Sayer. I'm the co-host of Alt Latino, and my song is Me Porto Bonito by Bad Bunny. I literally could not think of a lyric that has been in my head more this year than Tu no eres bebecita, eres bebesota. It swept the culture, it took everyone by storm. It was just one of those lines that everyone kind of understood, I think especially in Latin America, like what he was getting at and loved what he was getting at. This lyric was all over TikTok. It's hard to describe what it means exactly. It's like a hookup song. He's talking to a woman and he's basically calling her a babe, but in two different ways, right? An innocent version versus like a, a boss woman and kind of expressing like, I want a woman who's strong, who's a boss, who's empowered. And so I think for someone as visible, as far-reaching as he is to be carrying very clearly a message like that. I mean, I think it's really indicative of, of an openness, a new openness that exists within Latin America and across the world about women being able to embody their own power, their own sexuality, honestly. Um, and so I think that is something that I will take with me and that a lot of people will take with them into the new year is this is where we're headed as Latinos, as a global community, and that's a beautiful thing to see. The song is Me Porto Bonito by Bad Bunny featuring Chencho Corleone. Ana Maria Ser is the co-host of NPR's Music Alt Latino. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, the rise in private jet flights at one L.A. area airport and how the fumes affect working class neighborhoods. In the forecast, it will be mostly sunny skies today, highs in the mid-30s, clear skies overnight, temperatures dropping to the upper teens, low 20s.
Tomorrow, mostly cloudy skies, highs around 40 degrees. Thursday, mostly sunny and warmer, highs in the mid-40s. Friday, more sunshine, upper 40s. And Saturday, mostly cloudy with a chance of afternoon showers, highs in the lower 50s. Now business news. The owner of Boston's Bay State College is selling all of its China-based assets. That after the New England Commission on Higher Education put the college on probation over financial concerns in June. The college tells the Boston Business Journal Ambo Education is now only focused on U.S. universities. The Navy is awarding a more than $5 billion grant to a Connecticut company to build its submarines. The submarines will be made in Connecticut and Rhode Island by General Dynamics Electric Boat. Work is expected to be done by October of 2030. Gas prices are trending down in Massachusetts with another holiday coming up. According to AAA, the average price for a gallon of regular is now three thirty-seven, down six cents from a week ago. Diesel is going for five twenty-three a gallon, down eight cents from last week. The time is eight forty-six. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. The pandemic forced airlines to reduce flights, but there's been an explosion in private jet travel. As Kaylee Wells from member station KCRW reports, these luxury trips come at the environmental expense of people living near airports. The wealth gap is especially visible here in Van Nuys, a dense working class neighborhood home to one of the busiest general aviation airports in the country. Among those protesting the increased flights here is sociology professor Karen Morgan. You have the 1% using this airport in a working class neighborhood disproportionately affecting the environment right now in this neighborhood in addition to increasing the impact on the climate. Although it's convenient for the wealthy, private jet travel is also one of the most carbon intensive things a person can do, spewing about two metric tons of carbon every hour. The people living in Van Nuys are mostly renters, majority Latino, and households here typically make less than $60,000 per year. That's roughly the cost of a round-trip private flight from L.A. to New York. Suzanne Gutierrez-Hedges lives nearby, and she's worried about how those flights are affecting her kids' health. Just this morning, as we're walking outside to take my kids to school and getting in the car, I was like, cover your nose, run to the car, get in the car, shut the door. We couldn't breathe because of the, the jet fumes, and it happens all the time. Gutierrez Hedges recorded the jets flying over her daughter's school one day. She counted four of them in nine minutes. KCRW contacted 11 jet companies operating out of Van Nuys multiple times. Two declined to comment. The rest never responded. The Van Nuys Airport supports 10,000 jobs and says it contributes more than $2 billion to the area economy. Earlier this year, it improved the runway and let private companies build new hangars. So traffic has increased. But Samantha Bricker with Los Angeles World Airport says the air traffic itself isn't in the airport's hands. We can't regulate the number of flights coming into Van Nuys. We can't institute a cap. We have no ability to close down the airport at a certain hour. Those are just things that are not allowed under FAA regulations. The FAA said in a statement that they work with airports to address community concerns. They also said they'd review plane operation restrictions at Van Nuys if Los Angeles World Airports ever proposed any. 
The airport is offering cleaner jet fuel and requesting that planes not fly at night to curb noise and pollution, but those moves are only voluntary. So just how bad is the air in Van Nuys? Actually, we don't know. Bricker says the latest local study on the airport was done 17 years ago, and there's no plan to do another one. Most of the pollution was coming from roadway vehicle emissions as the highest source of pollutants, and it was not the aircraft. And so there has not been a need for a new study because the feeling was that the findings for that study are still relevant. The airport makes that argument even though private jet travel has increased 15% since the pandemic and cars have gotten cleaner. The EPA did study toxic lead levels five years ago. Van Nuys was the seventh worst airport in the country, with more than twice as many people living nearby than any of the other most polluted airports. Only the federal government can regulate airplane emissions, and those don't go into effect until 2028. But resident Suzanne Gutierrez-Hedges says she and her kids couldn't leave this polluted neighborhood even if they wanted to. And where would we move to? Like, we couldn't afford another house here in Los Angeles. Because like a lot of people in Southern California, the only home she can afford here is the one she already has. For NPR News, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on the Marketplace Morning Report, how Russia's invasion of Ukraine has upended Europe's efforts to shift to cleaner energy and sharply reduce emissions this decade. Now, it's been forced to revert back to a dirtier fossil fuel in the form of coal. That's coming up next here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. WBUR is fueled by the belief that independent journalism has a critical role in our lives, our communities, and our democracy. And we're fueled by the support listeners give because they want to make a meaningful difference. Now's the time to join them. I'm Lisa Mullins. Make your tax-deductible year-end contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you. In the forecast, it will be sunshine today. Temperatures in the mid-30s, mostly clear overnight tonight. Lows dropping to about 20 degrees. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy. Highs in the upper 30s, low 40s with a gusty wind at times. Thursday, back to sunshine, mid-40s. Friday, still sunny, upper 40s, and Saturday should be mostly cloudy with showers moving in later in the day and highs in the low to mid-50s. Right now, it is 29 degrees in Boston at 8.52. It's rough sailing for Southwest Airlines. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. From Marketplace in Los Angeles, I'm Nova Safo in for David Brancaccio. If you've tried to get on an airplane at any point since late last week, you're well aware of the flight cancellations and delays thanks to that deadly storm which wreaked havoc with holiday travel plans. Well, the disruptions drag on. More than 2,800 flights are canceled this morning, according to FlightAware, the vast majority of them by Southwest Airlines. Marketplace's Kristen Schwab has more. 
More than 3,800 flights were canceled yesterday, and there were over 7,000 delays. That's according to the flight tracking service FlightAware. I actually experienced some of this mess firsthand. I was stuck at the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport for more than 24 hours on Christmas night, but that was nothing compared to some of the travelers I met who had been stranded for days, sleeping on the airport floor, crying in customer service lines, and eventually cheering once they got off standby and onto flights. And it looks like the problems will continue into today day and into the week, especially if you're flying Southwest Airlines. The carrier canceled 70% of its flights yesterday, and it's already canceled 60% of its planned flights for today. Images on social media show luggage piling up and customer service lines snaking through airports. The U.S. Transportation Department says it's going to examine Southwest's cancellations and delays to determine if they were in the airline's control. Southwest issued a statement saying, quote, with consecutive days of extreme winter weather across our network behind us, continuing challenges are impacting our customers and employees in a significant way that is unacceptable. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. Companies in Europe's biggest economy, Germany, expect only a mild recession next year. That's according to a survey published by the Reuters news agency. And it's a relatively optimistic outlook, considering the energy crisis brought on by Russia's war in Ukraine. Earlier this year, there were fears of a steeper downturn. Europe has been dealing with the energy crisis, the drop in Russian natural gas exports, by relying more on burning coal to generate electricity. Marketplace's Sabri Beneshore takes a look at how that will impact the continent's goal of significantly reducing carbon emissions by 2030. Demand for coal in Europe is up 6% this year, according to estimates from the International Energy Agency. What the Europeans are doing is scrambling to keep the lights on. David Victor is a professor of innovation and public policy at UC San Diego. The supply of Russian natural gas has been disrupted, and French nuclear power plants have had unexpected problems with corrosion, cutting the electricity supply even more. So natural gas prices rose astronomically. And when the gas price has started going up, coal plants became more competitive. Marie Tamba is a senior analyst at Rhodium Group. Germany also notably delayed the closure of coal plants that were supposed to shut down, keeping them online in reserve. The continent may need them into next winter. But the pivot to coal will be a short detour. Coal has no future. Gernot Wagner is a climate economist at Columbia Business School. He says the reliance on coal is better than doubling down even further on natural gas. Germany, for example, is building three new natural gas terminals. Well, they will stick around for quite a while, while the coal plants that happen to be running this winter are not. This episode is accelerating Europe's drive towards renewables. The EU has relaxed permitting requirements to speed up renewable projects, and Wagner says demand for renewable and energy-saving appliances has skyrocketed. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore for Marketplace. Let's do the numbers. Markets are mostly up this morning after news that China is scrapping quarantine requirements for inbound visitors. The Shanghai Composite Index closed up 1%. Germany's DAX index is up 8 tenths percent. Dow and S&P futures, well, they're pointing up 1 tenths percent for the S&P and 2 tenths percent for Dow. The tech-heavy Nasdaq was up. It's now down about a quarter percent.
Workplace Morning Report is supported by Parametric, helping advisors and their clients think beyond ETFs to gain broad market exposure with distinct tax advantages all year round. Learn more about custom direct indexing at customtothecore.com. And by Avalara. Business owners have worries. Automating sales tax with Avalara helps get rid of them. Learn how Avalara can help take the worry out of tax compliance at avalara.com. Every year, more than 1,000 women give birth while in prison. For most, that means giving the baby up to family or foster care as soon as it's born. But in a few places, there's another option. Nurseries that let moms keep their babies with them behind bars. Elisa Roth reports from Indianapolis. Bouncy chairs and portable cribs line one wall of this room in the baby unit at the Indiana Women's Prison. A foam mat on the floor is scattered with toys, and mothers sit at tables or walk around holding their babies. Jessica Adams had just gotten to prison when she found out she was pregnant with Dawson. Uh, say hi. He's almost a year and a half now, and they'll live on this special unit together until she's released. This is one of only a few places in the country where women like Adams can keep their babies while they finish out their sentences. It's meant to let mothers and babies bond during the critical first years of the child's life, which research shows can have long-term benefits. Adam says it's also been a chance for mothers to learn new skills. This place has helped me. They have programs here to help us with the parenting styles and what you should and shouldn't do. Like how to do CPR and how to use car seats properly. For these women, being a mother is their prison job, which means they get paid to be here. The babies get formula and food through WIC and healthcare from Medicaid, just like they would on the outside. Leah Hessian, who runs the program, is employed by the Department of Corrections, but she explains most of the other costs for the unit are covered through charity. Everything you see around you, for the most part, is either donated or purchased with donated money. So um, we've been very blessed with a lot of religious organizations in the area that have been supportive of the program and um, a lot of different community organizations as well. That contribute everything from gift cards to cribs, extra diapers and formula. To come to the nursery, a woman can't have a violent charge and her sentence has to be up by the time the baby turns two and a half. In mid-November, there were 16 women living on the unit, some with their babies, some who are waiting to have them. Several other states have similar programs or are developing them. In Indianapolis, I'm Elisa Roth for Marketplace. And our producers are Ariana Rosas, Katie Barnfield, James Graham, Alex Schroeder, Erica Soderstrom, and Jared Dang. Our senior producer is Meredith Gerritsen-Morby. And I'm Nova Safo with a Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media.